0: you're tuning into a patreon exclusive segment of the oats for breakfast podcast
1: in this segment we're going to continue the discussion we were having with sam Ginden about the united auto workers strike in the united states my name is laura and i'm adam
0: welcome back to the oats for breakfast podcast sam
2: great to be here
1: um so The Republicans have been unsurprisingly quiet during the strike, uh, including Trump. Part of Trump's electoral strategy was to play to segments of the working class on issues of trade and American manufacturing. Yet we've seen over and over again how hollow that talk was. Is this an opportunity for the left perhaps to change the narrative on trade policy?
2: Uh, Yes, but I think that the left has to really be clear about what it's talking about. It's almost as if it's been confused because... The left has normally been critical of free trade, and Trump seemed to take that ground out from them, and they weren't sure how to respond without sounding nationalist, protectionist. So there has to be a really clear frame ab- about what free trade is about. It's actually not about trade. It's about giving—it's about property rights. It's about giving corporations a constitutional rights and limiting popular forces from imposing— Conditions on them that are in the social interest, content rules. You have to make a commitment to the community. You can't just leave. Uh, you have to treat people certain way. All kinds of things uh, that are about developing an industrial strategy or fairness and social justice. So I think it has to be framed that way, as opposed to uh, jobs moving to Mexico. That, that it's really a fight with corporations. It's a class issue, and it's not about the sovereignty of the state. Uh, You know, in Canada, it's something that people are concerned with because states have generally been the authors of this. They wanted it. They asked for it. It's about popular sovereignty. They're trying to prevent us from interfering in these rights by guaranteeing things to, to corporations that once are there can't be challenged. So there's a chance actually here to not just talk about trade, but to put trade in a larger class dimension. Uh, in a social democratic, well, I'd say socialist direction, but it can be in a populist, anti-corporate one. And I think that's the challenge. And, you know, we've got an election on in Canada, and it's the first time we had an uh, the first trade agreement we had in the mid-'80s with the U.S. There was more mobilization in Canada against free trade than I think any country in the world. Uh, this time, there's a trade agreement that people were waiting to sign. It's, it's not on the agenda of any party. Uh, and part of it is they're not quite sure how to talk about it. And I'd really emphasize that if you think about it as collab- class collaboration, uh, you want to unite with your capitalist class to outcompete everybody else, it does become nationalist. That's your national goal. But if you think about it as it's a democratic question, how do we actually gain control over our lives? Then you realize that we have to be opposed to free trade. And we have to t- start talking about planning and limiting corporations. So you can express those things not as chauvinism, but as actually gaining some democratic control over your life. And you have to engage and transform the state. But you're also saying that every country should be doing that. Unlike the nationalism, which basically says we want to win and screw everybody else. Uh, here you're saying, well, of course, Mexicans should have that right too. So it becomes possible to have a strategy you know, that it's kind of mutual and other people can emulate. But I, I think it's so such a good issue because it raises so many questions. And in the states in particular, because you're talking about the American empire, it raises even more questions.
0: Um, transitioning from Adam's question about the left, I had a question about the center. In the past couple of days, I noticed that virtually every Democratic primary candidate has come out in, you know, ostensible support of the UAW workers. Um, even I thought this was interesting. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's like the favorite among like the ultra ultra wealthy of all the Democratic candidates. So um, I was wondering what you think this says about how issues of workers' rights and labor precarity and inequality are resonating with Americans.
2: Well, it, it it's really clear in the state in the U.S. right now that there's been a backlash at the incredible insecurity that people have had while the economy has been growing I mean they're angry and they're frustrated and they're a bit more confident because they may not getting be getting higher wages but unemployment is low and there is a sense of rebellion and you see it in so many places uh, like with the teachers you know a lot of the rebellions were in Republican writings people who were lifetime conservatives standing up and saying this this isn't fair so there's definitely something. Going on, and some of it goes to the right, and some of it goes to the left. And any politician uh, will pick up on it, and they picked. They learned this from Trump as well, but that can be turned off anytime. And that's why it's important. So important to use that space and build on it. And it, to build on it, you're going to af- have actually have to say more radical things. You know, there's an easy way of talking about this. We all want to be middle middle uh, middle class. We all want a fair shake. We want fair trade things that don't mean much. Uh, but as soon as you start being concrete, I think you're also going to see a lot of this middle ground fade away. If you're really saying that, yeah, green deal to really pull this off. It's not just kind of adding something to what's been going on. This is a real change in priorities and power. And once you start talking that language, I think the not just the right, but um, the center will start getting a little bit more nervous. And then there's another question in all of this, which is electoral strategies. Uh, so far, this has been the popular thing to say. As you said, everybody will support the workers. But soon people are going to be worried about how do you beat Trump. And there's going to be an argument made by progressives that uh, if you're too radical, you'll lose to Trump. You have to tone that down. You can't say you're a socialist. You have to say you're a progressive capitalist or something. (laughs) So, you know, that's going to happen and people are going to actually think, well, maybe that's true. Maybe we have to tone this down to get rid of Trump and then we can be radical again. But that that always raises questions about how you build and how you educate and whether you're opportunist about elections. In in one sense, an ideal thing is I think somebody like Sanders has to keep taking radical positions and trying to educate people. And he's had good success at that. And then when it comes time for them deciding who's the best to defeat Trump, Uh, you just have to recognize, well, this is going to continue. If if it's not Sanders and it's somebody softer to get rid of Trump, we're going to have to keep mobilizing to push them. And, you know, Warren has very much positioned herself as I'm pro-capitalist, but I want a New Deal and trying to become the Roosevelt of the era. I actually want to save capitalism Mm -hmm. from itself. And I think that's going to be attractive to a lot of people. Mm
1: -hmm. But perhaps not as attractive to The sort of maybe core constituency of people that you need to bring out, which is people who don't vote. And I think that's potentially where the Sanders movement makes its space is among those people who might be some of the very same people who, for example, are temporary employees at GM, people who are sort of experiencing precariousness in the labor market and genuinely sort of disenfranchised from the political process.
2: No, I think you're right that you know one of the really key things in this election is going to be who votes. It may be the, it's probably going to be the deciding factor. And um, one of the things that's underestimated when people are just looking at this, you know, in those pundit kind of ways, is that if you're not exciting people, on the one hand, they might uh, vote, but not be active in the campaign, or they might not even vote. And so it's not just who they prefer, if you ask that in the poll, it's, the, it's their enthusiasm. And I think that's an important thing to consider.
0: So that brings me to a question that I was interested in, which is that there's this legislation working its way through the state in California, um, which will prevent Uber and other gig economy companies from classifying workers as independent contractors. So there could be sort of a downstream effect for unionized workers. So it's sort of a way for the state to step in and prevent this sort of web of contracts thing that we'll see to prevent union densification, so the so the more esoteric part of my question is: What do you see the role of the state being generally when it comes to these industrial disputes? Is it do you put your faith in the state or in more like civil society or just in, within the union leadership and rank and file? Not that they're really exclusive.
2: Yeah, uh, just just quickly before we leave the Uber example, uh, this could be very important also uh, in high tech Google sector.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So this it's a very progressive change in terms of them being identified as workers in terms of helping them or allowing them to organize. And I think this could be very important for Google workers because what's emerging with Google workers isn't actually economic demands. They're doing well, it's their concern with social justice issues. Uh, immigration, sexism, the environment, and uh, their interest in unions is that if they're going to be whistleblowers, they need some protection, like the union making the demand so they're, they're not fired immediately. So that raises a whole question about, uh, m- unions being different and organizing differently. And that's really important. You're, you can organize, you know, having access to these kinds of people who can tell you all kinds of stuff can be very significant. So the question that you raised is a really important and a big one and it's, it's been debated a lot. So maybe I could go back in terms of the historical debates. In 1945, the RAND formula was introduced. There was a big strike at Ford, and uh, the ruling was that uh, everybody who was a union member would have a dues check-off. And in exchange, the union had to police the contract against things like Wildcats. And there was a lot of criticism later on there was criticism for the left that this was the beginning of bureaucratization. The union was going to get dues without having to go and talk to everybody. And this was allowing a bureaucracy to develop, and it should have been rejected. And when you go back and read what workers are saying, on the left, and rank-and-file workers, they didn't like the fact that the, that Wildcats were being limited, that they hate it, and that the union would have to discipline, that they were all opposed to. But they liked the idea of having a dues check-off. They just said, we don't want to spend all our time running around collecting dues. This isn't the way I want to talk to workers online. like to go and talk about the issue. I don't want to just kind of run from one person to the other saying, give me some money. And, uh, you know, and when there was a downturn, they'd lose their dues and they might not even be able to function. So, so there was this debate and I guess my position on it, and I think there's good people arguing on both ways, is that institutionalizing some of your gains is inevitable. People don't want to fight every day. So if they can win something and get it guaranteed, they'll go for it. Let's move on. Uh, Like a cost of living clause. We used to have fights about, do you want a cost of living formula? So when inflation goes up, your wages go up? Or do you want to say, no, no, we'll go in there and fight for it? And our people thought, who wants to go and fight for cost of living? I'd rather get it automatic, and we'll fight for something else.
1: People fight over that with the minimum wage, too. Yeah. Whether or yeah. not it should be indexed. Yeah. If you index it, then you can't fight over raising it past the index.
2: Right. So, you know, so, so my argument would be that institutionalizing things is going to happen. Uh, the trick is that you always have to be mobilized at the base. That's what you always have to be thinking about. So, for example, if you say, well, we got the check off and now, uh, we get that automatically. Well, what you have to do is have a structure in the union. That says we're always talking to workers about their issues. We're always mobilizing. We're always carrying out struggles. In the 40s at Ford, they had a steward for every 12 people. So it was kind of a team. And that steward would have a couple of people who he considered sub-stewards. So if you wanted to get people out of a plant, you'd get hold of, you know, 100 people. Ladies get hold of, you know, a couple of hundred people. I mean, you could get, you know, in a few minutes, you could clear a plant. Now you probably have a steward for 200 people. And those stewards used to work on the line. So they were really conscious of working conditions. Now the stewards don't work on the line. They're quite happy to say, I'd rather have a wage increase. It doesn't hurt them. So I think that the, the critical thing is that these are all strategies that, you know, some of these things that you win, you can use as a strength, but you always have to say, okay, now what are we going to be doing? So we're constantly in touch with the members rather than trying to have a pure argument about, no, no, we want to make things as tough as they can or you know, no, no, the state's going to do everything for us. And and the reality at all times is that, you know, if you're not fighting for reduced work time, as an example, the state is very unlikely to give you anything but a minimum. The way it gets on the agenda is when somebody strikes and, it, it you know, the people are sympathetic. And, uh, you know, that's, that's critical. I'll, I'll give you an example about the, why the dynamics of it aren't simple. Uh, people win the minimum wage. You get a fifteen dollar minimum wage. First thing that happens is Tim Hortons figures, well, we got to get this back from them. So you cut a benefit, you cut a shift. You know, you find some way, but that has its own contradictions because now people feel like, hey, that's mine. That was just legislated. The law says it's mine, and they see the company trying to take it back. The public sees this too, and they're angry. Everybody goes into Tim Hortons is furious at Tim Hortons. So then, and you know, so then the challenge is. So then the union says, well, you need a union to protect you, which is true, but it's just rhetoric if you don't do something about it. What if the union would have said, uh the trade union movement in Ontario, we're going to get our unions together next week, and we're going to set up a Tim Hortons organizing committee in every community in the province, and we're going to get somebody from each union involved, and we're going to f- organize Tim Hortons across the province with a blitz drive, and then they can decide if they want their own union or if they want to join somebody else. Now, if the union did that, that's what you would call organizing. Saying, you know, you need a union isn't organizing. So the question is, well, why don't unions do that? And again, it's, if you're thinking about, oh, it would be nice if they were organized. You know, I'm sympathetic to them. Uh, you don't end up putting enough resources into it. It's not important enough. You're just saying it's nice. If you think this is a major class question, then you say, shit, doesn't matter if it costs us. That's what we're supposed to be here for. And the other problem is that unions compete with each other. So they couldn't cooperate on this. So, you know, so if, if you have a notion of unions that well, our job is to organize as many workers as we can and get their dues, you're not interested in cooperating with somebody. If you're saying we're building the class because we're getting killed, we better, you know, we better show these people we really are on our side, on their side. Uh, then if you did these things, they'd pay off in the long term. People would see unions that, hey, and the tragedy is that a lot of people your age, both of you, uh, all they've seen of unions is they're trying to be sympathetic to them, but they haven't actually been inspired by them, and 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 there's a reason for that, you know, it's, you know, and and that's a, that's again, it's a challenge to the unions.
0: So we've seen since the strike started south of the border that um, the Canadian workers in Oshawa were pretty much immediately temporarily laid off, um, and a lot of that has to do with you know, obvious manufacturing considerations and just-in-time production. But something that struck me about that is that it was pretty much immediate, and I do believe that their collective agreement is up next year. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. So I wondered what your take was on that, whether whether any of that is a signal to the workers here that, you know, strikes can cause pain here and keep that in mind going forward.
2: No, I think that uh, there's an understanding about how integrated the industry is you know if the brakes aren't coming in and if the motors aren't coming in you're going to be affected directly and there's a sense about uh, i think for most workers seeing this as that's too bad because this plant may close at the end of the year and i wouldn't mind having a chance to make more money but i think there's a sympathy for hey these guys are fighting back and i think that inspires people to think about well maybe we should have which I think is uh, good. So we're actually going to have uh, a meeting soon, uh, a solidarity meeting over the GM thing. We'll try to bring somebody up from the States so we can, first of all, just find out what's going on, what are the issues, how are people uh, making out, what's the mood, uh, but also to strategize with them about, well, what do we do about these things? I mean, obviously, you know, this free trade agreement stuff didn't matter, and if it was a little bit better, it wouldn't have mattered. How, how do we actually deal with these questions of the power of corporations and their ability to restructure our lives? And how do we link up with the public so we're not isolated? And, you know, is there an opportunity by the union leading on the environment instead of seeming to be a barrier? So I think it'll be, uh, you know, interesting. The only thing I would say is that these are longer-term questions. I, you know, it'd be wonderful to be surprised that everybody suddenly says, hey, this is what we have to do. I think I think that takes time, and it takes filtering through, and it sees it happening repeatedly, and then people say, shit, we'll just keep going through hell all the time. We've got to do something different. Uh, so so I don't know how it'll turn out. I'm kind of, you know, it's, I'm just really watching and curious, but I, I feel excited about the fact that something is happening, both in the States which I think can have longer-term changes in leadership and attitude, and questions that are being raised here, even if they don't all have easy answers. Uh, Some people find it depressing when you keep telling people how complicated things are. I I get depressed when I hear people say how easy things are, because then I know that nothing's going to happen, and they're going to get demoralized and cynical, and they don't... They're not going to prepare for what you really have to do. So I I think actually people confronting how complicated things are is hope. And especially with young people, there's there's openings. I really think young people are learning. I mean, you know, in my experience, I see people who went through anarchism, fighting free trade, fighting globalization, you know, the Seattle, uh, learning things. And I don't mean all of them, but if a portion of them are learning things from this about, well, you can't just say we'll ignore the state, or you can't just say we don't have to think about political organization. Uh, you just have to do it or whatever. If people are learning that, then it's exciting and there's potential, and, you know, we can begin to see something developing. Uh, because my generation didn't leave you much. Uh, you know, we went through the 60s, and, and uh, I can't even tell you what happened and why. But, uh, we were really pretty defeated. Uh, and it's, you know, the question is whether there's another generation that's gonna change things. And they're gonna have to be changed. I mean, and, and one of the lessons is change is gonna have to be quite radical. You know, in the 50s and 60s, reforms had a base. Economy was doing good. You could just redistribute things a little bit and they could work. You know right now the message when they say there's no alternative they what they're really saying is this is the only kind of capitalism you can have and sometimes it's exaggerated you know you could probably roll back forward a bit you know and it's not like capital really needs that extreme but there is a question about the middle road isn't so great anymore it's not, not it doesn't really it's not really possible it sounds utopian
1: okay so let's talk a little bit about the closure in GM Oshawa. After the announcement of the closure, the union leadership hired an expensive PR firm to engage in an attempt to basically publicly shame the company, even running ads during the Super Bowl. Uh, Some of that campaign was criticized from the left for its nationalistic rhetoric and implicitly disparaging Mexican workers. Uh, In the past, Sam, you've written about strategies for building solidarity across borders in the auto sector. How do you read this campaign in light of, you know alternative strategies to potentially build solidarity across borders rather than engage in these kind of boycott campaigns?
2: No, it's, it's, it's very important. I mean, you know, it's, it's a tough situation for the union when the company closes a plant and it doesn't have any obvious um, power to stop that legislatively or some other way. And the trouble with the PR campaign is that it doesn't engage the members. You're completely focused on... Yeah, instead of uh, hiring organizers, a lot of organizers for the money they spent, you're just trying to shame the company. And at some point, the company might not like that, but they're not going to reverse a basic strategy that they have. So the, the trouble with the, yeah, so the trouble is, is that you're not building for a fight. It's kind of, you know, the leader thinking that it's the strength of his personality and negotiating skill and how convincing he is talking to GM plus these, Ads, and uh, it was a strategy that wasn't going to turn this around. Uh, I think, you know, what had to be done here, and it would have been very hard. But it, you know, to, is that workers at the beginning were frustrated and angry, and they actually stopped production for a while. And they had to be given the confidence to sustain this. They had to be given the confidence from the leaders that they had some kind of a plan that could really work. And that the leaders were out there organizing the community. And the only plan that could have worked would have been to say, we have to think differently. This dependence on GM, we've seen. We used to have 23,000 people in Oshawa. We had 2,300 when this happened. This was going down to 300. Something wrong with the strategy. It doesn't work. You can give them subsidies. You can give them concessions. But they make the decision based on profits. So we had to start saying, what can we do beyond GM? And then I think also it should have been asking, what can we do beyond uh, uh, carbon-based cars? And so the strategy that some of the people who, you know, a small group of people in Oshawa that we worked with, came up with, is we should really say that the government should take this over. And the government should take this over and convert the place to making electrical vehicles that it would sell to the post office and hydro and ambulances and shuttle buses, etc., School many school buses, so that you could actually build a solid base without it being based on how competitive are you. Because the the, the idea is that if you're trying to be competitive, you can take it over and it just puts you back in the same position. If you have to compete with Mexico or China or even the United States, you're back to saying, we're going to be like them and we might lose. The idea here was to have a plan that said, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be government-run. It's going to be procurement. The workers in the community will have a special role in it, so it isn't just bureaucratic. And we could mobilize around that. And I think that that kind of a plan has potential. You're speaking to the whole Canadian public. You're speaking to the this great moment in the environmental movement. Uh, you've got a base for converting the environmental movement, which has been terrific at a general level, but not very good in concrete terms. You know, it doesn't have answers to workers who say, what do you mean a just transition? How would that work? So, you know, this is this this could have played that role. And it also could have revived the union. It could have been, you know, out there. Young people would see this, hey, it's this union who's really doing things. We're talking about environmental change, but look at this union. And that didn't happen. And the fact that that didn't happen was a real problem because workers look at what their union's doing and thinking, well, the union's not interested what chance do we have uh unions uh workers they've really been defeated for a long time they're demoralized they're depressed when they hear the news they're worrying about what they're going to do some of them don't even want to think about it some of them are happy that they're going to be retired and most of all they're not thinking about possibilities it's like it's been beaten out of them does not you know all they've experienced is de- being defensive so you know it's been very difficult to really get Workers in Oshawa in significant numbers interested and we'll see what happens so one of our strategies was very much how do we give people uh, since we're not the union and don't have union resources how do we give people a sense of possibilities and the media became very important for this if they could see it in the press and if they could see positive articles uh, that will make them think gee Something's happening. Or if we could show that we're mobilizing Toronto, hey, it's beyond Oshawa. And the other thing we did is we got a feasibility study. So we could have somebody actually analyze it and put together a study that says, first you have to have completely different criteria. We're not doing this to see if you can make the cheapest vehicles in the world. We're doing this to say uh, this is completely uh feasible and a good idea if you understand the measure as being What are the costs and benefits to the community? And if you start from that perspective and you do an analysis, you can say, hey, that's possible. But it's going to require massive government involvement. And then the question is, well, how do you do that? And that's something we're struggling with right now. There's an election on. And um, if we can't get it on the agenda, then that's a problem. People aren't talking about it. So the question is, can we use the election and get it on the agenda?
0: I noticed none of the major candidates have really spoken about the issues. No, so we far. got,
2: we got a resolution passed at the NDP convention, a uh, provincial NDP convention. But yeah, you quickly learned that resolutions are resolutions. You need people who actually champion it. So actually there's a meeting today, which I'll find out about after, uh, later tonight, uh, with the provincial NDP where we're kind of briefing them and raising this. And you know, we're trying to get, uh, The message out to the NDP federally and Jagmeet Singh. I just trying to get the point across that there's an opportunity here and you're floundering and, you know, you can enthuse people. Uh, You can show that you can play a leadership role and you can do some education that in the long term is the only way you can build uh, and show that you're different than others. And, um, you know, it's hard. I'm sure they're getting all kinds of advice from technocrats. So we're trying to show that there's actually a lot of sympathy for this that maybe will give
1: the NDP some confidence to undertake such a project require significant federal investment um in what ways might that change workers relationship like for example going from you know bargaining with a multinational corporation like general motors to bargaining with government essentially yeah
2: no it would be actually a really interesting question because you'd want to one of the things we put into the uh feasibility study that the the person who did the feasibility study that is right in there was that uh, this wasn't going to be a project that said workers are going to take lower wages to make this work. He did all his cost analysis on the assumption that all workers would get the top rate. There would be no second tier temporary workers or anything else. So he did all his cost estimates on that basis, which is a signal that we're trying to figure out how to do something Differently, And I think there's a lot of things we'd have to think about differently. We'd want the workers with their skills to really be developed and to have more input, um, to develop new kinds of skills. We're thinking about it would be great to have a research center, a transportation environment research center with, you know, 100 engineers, young engineers in Oshawa that's be thinking about everything we could do. Uh, so it would be a different kind of relationship, both with the community. You know, it might be under municipal ownership, but it would require a lot of federal government money. And it would have a relationship with all kinds of people in the private sector because we can't make everything inside that plant. You'd have to be buying all kinds of things. But those kinds of questions are really interesting to think about, okay, this is going to be different, and how does that work, and how do you bridge the fact that you're working there and you're worried about uh, bargaining with an employer? On the other hand... Uh, you're thinking about the Canadian public more generally. So, you know, you'd be thinking about what kind of products it should be to make this consistent. I, I think it would be pretty exciting to have that kind of an example that could inspire others to maybe have different examples.
1: Right, because there's, I mean, there's definitely a, a concern among some people. Well, first of all, that that you could make a sort of green transition just, quote unquote. But then there's also a concern that the sort of concerns about environmentalism could be mobilized to make workers accept less, right, mm-hmm. for the greater good. Uh,
2: these are balanced, these are questions uh, to balance. Uh, you know, you certainly have to think about it. If if the worker says we want to go in there and get a $10 wage increase, even if we are making... More than the average, you'd have to actually have a discussion about that. Well, is that a good idea? But it meant, it means that unions and workers would have to deal with this question of representing society more generally and representing ourselves. And I think, I think one of the things that you do in those circumstances is you set certain floors that you don't want, you know, broken through. Like, in other words, that the conditions have to be good. There's no way we're going to sacrifice our health that's not going that isn't how we should deal with making this work uh, that this shouldn't work at the expense of lower paid workers you know so we're, that's not going to be a condition but beyond that yeah there might be some difficult questions that you have to raise and ask you know you might you might decide hey it's a better idea to fight for public pension so that everybody has a pension and you know we're not in danger of this place closes we might lose our pension or something
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sam. This has been a really great discussion.
2: My
1: pleasure.
0: And thanks again for our listeners to tuning in to this Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast.
1: And thanks for being a patron of the podcast. Your support means a lot to us.
0: See you again soon.
1: Bye.